Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Pod Jerky. Now, before we get started on today's show, I'm going to do things a little bit differently right now, and I'm going to change things up on the fly. Usually, I go by the moniker of Director Awesome, but today I'm going to change that, and I'm just going to go by my regular name, Just Tom. The reason I'm doing this is because I've realized that you could do a lot more on social media using your name and then being able to use your picture and not hiding your identity. So that's why I'm going to make this change. Mrs. Awesome will now be known as my wife, Amy. So from here on in, we're going to go by Tom and Amy. Most of you on social media already know that it is myself and my wife, Amy, that are doing the show from time to time. And we just wanted to kind of change it up so that on the show from here on in that we're going to be doing this uh, this change. On today's episode, we're going to be starting a new segment. Actually, not really a segment, but we're going to be starting from time to time. Amy and I will be doing something that we're going to call Tom and Amy's Netflix Review. On today's episode, we're actually going to review a few of the Netflix documentaries. This is going to be a two-part series as there's quite a few that we've been able to watch while we were in quarantine. So we're going to review about 10 different documentaries that we have been able to watch during lockdown. And today's episode, we are going to go through about five of them. All right. For the first time, we are going to welcome Amy to the show. And yes, she's been on the show before, but as Mrs. Awesome. And right now she's going to be known as Amy from here on in. So welcome back to the show. Hello. And as I just discussed earlier, we are going to be talking about some of the Netflix documentaries that we were able to watch during quarantine. We got a lot of time on our hands, so we were able to finish Netflix, actually. I don't know if there's anything else for us to watch on the show, so we're going to go over some of the the, uh, documentaries that we actually enjoyed watching. And... I, I see a problem with some of the documentaries that we we watch, and any documentary really, because what happens is is that it's kind of a one-sided story. They try to show all the evidence that could exonerate an inmate. However, they don't always show all the evidence against that inmate. So what these cases also show is that there is corruption in the system and it's possible that police stations or um, I guess investigators or whatever it is go to great lengths to show that they weren't wrong no matter who it hurts in the process. What are your thoughts on that? Again, it's hard because it is one-sided most of these documentaries based on who's doing them, but I find... It's an interesting it's an interesting point of view and it's it's hard not to be biased to the person that's putting it on or agree with what they're doing and the viewpoint that they're showing cuz it's pretty convincing. They are convincing, but at the same time you have to think anything like Michael Moore has ever done it's always been one-sided to where, you know, he wants to get people to believe what his feelings on the subject matter are. And the same with these documentaries, it's it's basically one-sided. You never really get to hear anything from the other side of the story. So, you're going based on the facts that are presented in these documentaries which make you actually it kind of leads you to the conclusion of what should be happening, but we're not always sure if that's the right outcome based on the the evidence that's presented in those documentaries. So we're going to start off with one of the documentaries that we recently watched, and it's called Time, the Khalif Browden Story. And this happened in 2010. And basically what the Netflix documentary is about is 
a 16-year-old African-American male was arrested on suspicion of stealing a backpack. And he was sent to Rikers Island, a jail in New York, I believe. He maintained his innocence the whole time throughout this, this story. And he was actually in Rikers Island for three years. And two years he spent in solitary confinement. And he was arrested earlier in his, his uh, childhood, I guess, for stealing a bakery truck and smashing it into a car. So he did have a felony on his record. And they used that against him, I guess, in the case to keep him in jail. And he, he never got a trial out of this uh, before he was actually released from prison. His mother or his foster mother or adopted mother could not afford to post bail. Right. And the bail was, I I believe it was $3,000. They didn't have the money to get him out uh, on bail and they never went to trial. So he was never prosecuted for it. They left him in jail. And the series kind of explores the mistreatment and the violence that goes on uh, at Rikers Island. And then Khalif actually talks about uh, the depression he goes through from the things that he's seen. So there were errors in the police reporting, including criminal complaints being from March 2nd. And then on March 8th, there was 11 different attorneys that actually turned down his case saying that he actually had no case, which brings up the fair trial issue. You always have the right to a fair trial. And in three years, he never received a trial, just sat in jail, kind of rotted, was being attacked in jail by both prison guards and and inmates. The the kid went through a lot and and had no opportunity to share his side of the story in the the court system. So civil rights attorneys actually took his case and he was granted a disposition after filing a suit against the New York Police Department, the Bronx uh, District Attorney, and the Correctional Facility. Instead of addressing the issues, they tried to discredit and destroy him. The charges actually ultimately got dropped and Browden committed suicide at his house. I believe, what was it, one year, two years after he had gotten out of jail? Now, so I think the the piece that really stuck with us on this one was just the lack of fair trial. And I think the fact that you don't really understand how some of these kids grow up. So he's a foster care kid. His foster mom had been with him pretty much since I think he was like three or four. Um, And she loved him like her own son. And they talked about, you know, his brothers and sisters that inevitably um, some were foster kids as well. Some were um, his foster mom's biological uh, children. And you just, you kind of see the environment that he grew up in. And he talked a lot about how, you know, the circumstances of the of the way he was brought up kind of almost made him be viewed as less than. Well, they he talk he goes in to talk about when his father left, things changed. He felt like he was alone. His father left the picture and his kind of childhood changed from that point, right? And that's, I guess, when he got into the trouble of stealing the bakery truck and going for a joyride and crashing it. And and I guess that's where he called a downward spiral in his life. And then this just happens. And it, it just kind of boggles my mind that you know, somebody picked him as the the culprit to stealing a backpack and he hadn't even been anywhere around, I guess, that area or he was just, you know, walking down the street and, and the police pulled him over and accused him of doing it. And then he spent time in jail and he had no trial. It wasn't fair to him. This documentary actually goes into a lot of detail of how the prison system on Rikers Island actually works 
and what's going on there. And it's quite disturbing. And I guess New York has decided to shut down Rikers Island as of the year 2026. Uh, Rikers Island will no longer be operating. They're going to have time to actually move some of the inmates to different prisons and stuff like that. But this was an excellent documentary Highly recommended to watch. Very disturbing when you find out what happens. I know we spoiled it on the show here. It's just very disturbing to see some of the injustices that are going on in the world and people that aren't getting fair shakes to their situation. I think the most disturbing part of the whole documentary for me was the length of time he spent in solitary confinement. And, you know, he was a small kid. He wasn't tall. He wasn't muscular. He wasn't... And so I guess he kind of got picked on a little bit. And like anything, your natural instinct is to stick up for yourself. And as a result of that, he made enemies in there. And as far as he was concerned, he had to make sure he was always looking after himself. Then that got him a reputation of a troublemaker because he thought that he needed to instigate a fight in in the common area just to show that, you know, he was a tough kid. And because of that, that led to just this mistreatment of him. And, you know, considering he was literally in there awaiting trial, the fact that he spent two thirds of his time in there in solitary confinement, you know, they they interviewed a ton of psychologists about what solitary confinement and lack of being around people and what that does to, you know, your mental state. He, he never got over it and he could not adjust to anything. And it wasn't, it didn't matter if it was a fellow inmate or if it was one of the guards, he was just viewed as a troublemaker. And as a result of that would be thrown in solitary for the most minor offenses within the prison system. You know, and then even coming home, like you said, he couldn't deal with the troubles of what he saw in jail and what he went through in jail. He came home and his mom would say, you know, he would punch holes in the wall just out of anger. Like there would be holes all over the house just out of anger. And, you know, he couldn't sleep at night. And this is all stuff that weighed on his mind, got to mental health issues with that. And he ends up one day just hanging himself by a cord, I guess, or a bed sheet outside of his window. And that was the sad part because this kid, I believe by the time he committed suicide, I think he was 22 years old or 21 years old, didn't get to live his full life just because the system screwed him over and his his mindset was, you know, I'm done. I can't take this anymore. And so sad to see that at such a young age. And for someone who was inevitably proven innocent and charges dropped because they didn't actually have a case against him, he's released back into the streets as if he's nothing. There's there's no mental health support. There's no counseling. There's no compensation. There's nothing to allow him to figure out how to return to normal. I mean, he lost out on his high school education. He lost out on all those things that a teenager is supposed to have going through an opportunity to, to go to college. And his dream was always to be a businessman. He always said, I, I, I look at the people in suits and that's what I want to be. I want to be a businessman growing up when I get older. And, and he did. He lost that opportunity. It's just, uh, it was a really eye-opening viewpoint is I guess what I will say. And I think, you know, maybe it's how we grew up or, you know, where we grew up, but we certainly didn't realize what some of these kids go through and what it's like to be in juvenile detention. And then especially in Rikers Island. I mean, the only thing that probably separated 
Rikers Island juvie to the regular Rikers Island was an age group. Right. Because the conditions and the treatment clearly did not discriminate on age. So, I mean, we we highly, highly, highly recommend watching this documentary. I believe it's a six-part series. It's six hours out of your life. You're in lockdown. You're in quarantine. Whatever it is that you're doing right now. It's a good documentary. You'll probably enjoy watching it, but it's going to open your eyes to some of the stuff that goes on in our world that we clearly didn't know about or haven't seen through our eyes. But, I mean, go check it out. Great documentary. You'll enjoy watching this one. The next one we're going to move on to is called Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. And this was in 2020, actually, that this kind of came out. Now, I'm going to start by saying that I kind of knew the story before watching the documentary because I listened to a podcast called The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. And this is just a disgusting story based on, I don't know if I want to say white privilege, but it's more of rich privilege and getting away with things because you have money. Now, for those who don't know what happened with Jeffrey Epstein is, is basically he has created this kind of child sex ring, I guess you can call it, um, where he would have underage girls come to his house. Uh, He would take them to his private island and he would do uh, sexual things with them and he would pay them and he would have them come over and say, you know, you're going to give me a massage today. And there were other people involved in this ring as well. We're not going to implicate anybody as they haven't been tried. So I don't really want to mention any names. If you want to see who is actually uh, involved in these rings, then you go ahead and watch the documentary. Great film, great documentary to watch. So uh, what are your takes on this one? So I did not listen to the podcast and I I had obviously heard of him through the news because it was such a huge case. case. Pardon my language for what I'm about to say, but he is a sick fuck. There's just no other way to describe it. He was manipulative. I probably didn't pronounce that correctly. He just, you know, and, you know, part of the conversation I think that you and I had um, through watching it was, you know, how could these girls in some cases keep going back knowing what they were doing to him? Well, okay. So, well, let's take this back and just explain that a little bit because... While we were watching, we were seeing all these girls being interviewed that were victims of Jeffrey Epstein. And what the story was being told was, is they would go one time and they would, you know, give him his massage that they were told that he was going to have. And he would pay them 100 or 120 bucks or whatever it was, 200 bucks. And then he would actually sexually assault these girls. And then they would end up going back again and again and again. And then start recruiting to... their friends. Right. And recruiting... They started to recruit their friends and say, hey, you need to come. You can make some money doing this and that and whatever. And then they cried sexual assault, right? So that was my beef with the whole story. Don't get me wrong. They are victims totally. What he did, he was a pig. Um, he's not a human being that should have even been able to get away with what he got away with. But why did these girls keep going back? That was my question. And I think the conversation we ended up having was most of these girls came from nothing. So either broken homes, no parents, poverty, uh, a lot of poverty. It's like he knew the right sort of profile of girl to kind of go after, right? Most of these girls were thinking, you know, it's 200 bucks, like it's just a massage and then not realizing sort of what it was. And because of his charm and his money and the life that he let them have at that, at all of his properties, it was, it was like living in the lifestyles of the rich and famous. I think he promised them the world, right? And in some cases, 
um, some of the girls that ended up becoming what we would call employed by him ended up essentially being sex slaves to him, but they also worked for him. So it was, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you your college education and we're going to get you licensed in the, in the career that you want to be in. You know, we'll look after your family and, you know, you'll get to travel the world. And for a lot of these girls that came from nothing, he was promising them everything. And I think strictly just based off of the fact that they had never known this type of life or they had never known what it was like to be cared for or to be offered a future. They were just mentally manipulated. Right. And I think, unfortunately, you know, there are some that were strong enough to walk away and only did it once and never went back. And then there were others that unfortunately were manipulated by his sort of conversation and his promise of a better life. You know, one of the girls actually commented around how he offered if if he she came to work for him he would send his her sister over to get her education. And I think he sent her to Portugal or Spain somewhere. And she's thinking, okay, well, he's far away from her. He can't do this to her. And then it turns out when he would go over there for holiday or to visit, he in fact was in, ended up sexually assaulting the sister as well. Well, he got away with this for decades, right? Yeah. He, and, and this all goes back to his beginnings where he, where he started out and, and everything he did was a lie. And he manipulated the situation to getting a job as a teacher at a university by saying he had a degree and he had a diploma from here and there, and he never did. And then he got involved in partnership with a with the stocks, I guess, yeah, um, by also lying about different things and the people there trusting him. So I guess he was a smooth communicator. He knew how to manipulate people. He knew how to people uh, get people to trust him. And this just led to a whole can of worms opening, I guess, is, is what you can call it, because this is what led to the whole sex ring. No matter what the girls said, I guess, if they were to tell authorities or if they were to write to politicians or nobody ever believed them because this man was so filthy rich, just as the title explains, that he got away with whatever he wanted to get away with. Mm -hmm. And eventually he ended up getting caught because somebody finally took a stance against this. They indicted him and they had him charged and he ultimately was proven guilty or mm -hmm. yeah he was proven guilty in court and while he was in jail ended up committing suicide now you can't see i'm putting that in air quotes they said he was hung by his uh, neck by a bed sheet in his jail cell i don't believe that's how it went down i believe either one of the inmates in there killed him and they set it up to look like uh, a suicide or one of guards killed him because conveniently the security cameras didn't work in his hallway and his cell. He was on 24-hour watch as well. And apparently uh, the, what was it? The lock on his jail cell was busted or something? Like, it it just seems fishy. It didn't add up to what the story they're telling us. And actual science has shown that the way that the bedsheet was tied around his neck, there's no way that he could have committed suicide that way. The way his neck was broken, that never would have happened the way he was hung in the cell. So we just think that that was just a little bit uh, fishy to end off that story. Definitely go and check out this 
documentary. It's well worth the watch. I mean, most of these documentaries you're going to get very angry with. You're going to want to throw stuff at the TV. You're going to be in your head like, this is unbelievable. How are people like this getting away with stuff? And this is the stuff that we don't see in everyday life, right? We don't know that this stuff is going on and that people like this are getting away with this. I think we're naive to the fact that we kind of live in a bubble where, you know, we have a lot of good friends and nice people that we're around. Just a simple little life. And we're we're not dumb, but we're also at the same time not educated in the fact that this is stuff that actually does happen in this world. Mm -hmm. And we don't see it, so we don't know that it's happening. And it's very, very sad that we have to watch a documentary in order to know that this stuff is going on. The one thing I will say, just kind of as a closing on this one, the thing that I appreciated the most about this documentary, so well done to the people that produced it and directed it, it is told from the victim's point of view. So yes, there's a lot of uh, information around the actual things that happened around the case and how it got investigated, but majority of it is told from the victim's point of view, which is which is very different than a lot of these uh, documentaries that you watch or a lot of these sort of court specials you tend to see on TV, you know, so it can be a little heartbreaking at times because the women really get into sort of what happened to them and uh, the different things that that happen. But kudos to them for, you know, sticking up for themselves and and finally being able to get justice. Yeah, really well done documentary. Uh, Totally recommend it. Take a look at it on Netflix and let us know what you think. So the next one we're going to move on to is one that we just happened across on Netflix and watched the preview and said, hey, you know what, let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. And it's called The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. Now, this was a documentary based on a little girl that was on holiday day from the UK with her parents and her siblings as well. And what had happened is, is her parents had gone, I guess, to to eat dinner with their friends and they left the kids in the room to sleep. Now they were on a resort, I guess. I don't, I don't remember exactly where they were. Was it in Spain? Portugal. Portugal. And they, they actually went to dinner, left the kids in bed. Now I'm not a parent myself, but I don't think I would ever leave my kids alone in a room in a strange place that I haven't they really been to but there was i think it was what five uh four four to six families everybody had kids and they basically didn't go for dinner until uh later on in the evening once the kids were in bed and it was either every 10 or every 20 minutes one of the parents would go and kind of swing by all the rooms and check on the kids so it was only a matter of like 10 to 20 minutes that these kids were left unsupervised at a time. So it was kind of a bit of a system that they they had had while they were away on this vacation on this resort. Not that that justifies leaving your children alone in a room, but I think... And given the time, because this is what, the 90s? When did she go missing? Uh, I don't remember. You know, it, it, and it was in a, you know, a, what they would have deemed a very safe kind of neighborhood at the time. You know, it was supposed to be a fairly secure resort. Um, and I guess apparently not because she, you know, she got taken right from the... Bedroom. So she was basically taken out of her room while there was no check going on with the with the parents at, at the dinners and the rest of the kids were left alone. The parents noticed at about 10 o'clock at night that she had gone missing. And they had two kids, right? They had, they had her twins. And they had twins. They had a set of twins. Yeah. And the set of twins, they they were fine. They were left in the room. Two boys. And the uh, little girl was taken. Now, this goes to show, I guess, maybe the little girl was taken because little girls are getting kidnapped to become part of a 
sex ring in different parts of the world. Yeah, human tra- um, it was kind of like human the- trafficking kind of thing. And and this is what they kind of uh, like in this case too to say, you know what, she's gone. She's she's across the ocean already by the time anybody had figured out that this had happened. I think the friends were actually accused and given suspect status Parents. to begin. Parents were as well. I think the friends were as well. They were all given suspect status just based on the investigation going on because there wasn't a lot of eyewitnesses to see what had happened. There were a couple of people that had actually seen a guy walking around, a figure walking, maybe carrying a little girl or getting into a car with a little girl. But there was nothing that definitely matched the uh, description of of Madeline. So going on, nobody knew what was going on. They did searches. They did everything that they could. She probably ended up on a boat and was across the ocean before anybody had anything to do with any part of the investigation. It's probably been, oh my gosh, I want to say probably close to 15 to 20 years since this actually happened. The parents have actually never given up looking for her. They probably stayed in Portugal for, I want to say it was a couple of years, staying close to the investigation. And, you know, they were definitely ripped apart in the media. They were hounded by the media for years. This quiet little resort town had never seen so many people. I think the police investigation over there didn't really know how to handle missing persons. And so they weren't really, they probably forgot to do a lot of things right out of the gate that potentially could have led to potentially finding out who took her. You know, if you compare it to sort of what we understand that happens sort of in North America around missing person cases, it sounds as though that those protocols really didn't apply then. It was a small police force. They didn't really understand how to handle it. They should have called in the federal police in sooner and they didn't. So there was a lot of, a lot of learnings, I guess, that came out of it for them on sort of how to handle this missing person. I think the, the hardest part I remember watching through this was when they hired an investigator from, from the States to help them. And they, they literally have organizations both in the U S and all over the world that go through, through the dark web, essentially. And there's photos of these kids, yeah. uh, both male, both and female, that are basically rack and stacked like a, like a freaking classifieds ad to be able to basically sell these kids off into sex slaves. And they would do sort of facial recognition and they would, you know, they try to figure out as she aged, what would she look like now to cross-reference against these photos. They never assumed that she was dead. They assumed that she was likely given away to someone. Well, interesting enough, uh, doing a little bit of research on this is that 2013, Scotland Yard actually released images of people that they wanted to interview regarding this whole situation. And just this month, in 2020, in June, uh, the police in Germany, uh, in a small city, announced that they suspect a convicted sexual predator is responsible for uh, McCann's disappearance. So that's interesting, uh, an interesting bit of news that doesn't get into the documentary because this just recently happened. Um, So it could have been a sexual predator that did steal her off of the resort kidnap her off the resort we don't know she was three she's never been found we don't know if she is deceased right now or if she is living uh, we have no idea but it's a documentary that you know it's 50 50 on my side it was interesting to see it was a bit um, slow. It, yeah but it was a bit slow i mean they probably could have done away with a couple of the episodes but you know and fit it in but i guess they wanted to stretch out the story try to get their point across try to do what they can. I'm not highly recommending this documentary, but I am recommending it to watch if you have nothing else to watch. It is, you know, somewhat entertaining to the fact that 
again, it opens your eyes to certain things that are going on in the world, uh, certain things that you don't know. The next one that we are going to get into is one that probably everybody has seen and has been all over social media, and that is Tiger King. Because it happened to release at the perfect time, which was right when we all went into quarantine. And right. Work. So they did some good marketing there in oh terms boy. of uh, releasing that. And what a train wreck of a documentary that is. So much to come out of this. The, the lead there. Uh, what's his name again? Oh, Joe Exotic. Joe Exotic. Yeah, this one's based on Joe Exotic and his uh, love of big cats. And, and the shit that goes on in this documentary is just insane because, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you, you look at this documentary about people coming to see all of these tigers that are in captivity and want to just take pictures with them. These are animals that are meant to be out in the wild. And I know a lot of people in this world do have animals that are meant for the wild to be, you know, out in big game reserves or they have them at home and that's not a place for them. Now they go in the documentary, they talk about how Joe Exotic mistreated these animals. They starved the animals. These animals would be you know, hit and stuff just to be able to be trained. No different than you would hear about like in a circus that they have to do certain things to get these animals to actually do what they want. The The animals would actually attack him from time to time where he had to defend himself and ends up shooting one of them. And it goes... I guess into well, the fight. Well, he hires like ex-cons and troubled kids to come and work for him. And I think the only the only good news that came out of any of any of that documentary was the fact that a lot of these kids who had or ex-cons who had drug and alcohol problems, he got them sober. Like that's the only good thing. Yeah. Well, this whole documentary is actually a fight between Carol Baskin and Joe Exotic. And Carol Baskin was involved with Big Cat Rescue. And it was just a, an argument of the mistreatment of the, the cats, Joe Exotics, compared to what she did. And then it was Joe Exotic talking about Carol Baskin killing her husband and trying to get the money, I guess, from the life insurance and then remarrying. And it was just a whole back and forth. And then you see Joe Exotic uh, releasing music videos and I remember posting this on social media and going you know this voice does not suit the voice of the guy that's talking like it this sounds nowhere near and and everyone was kind of commenting and saying like he has a really nice voice actually come to find out it wasn't him right so you know it sounded nothing like him and and I had no doubt that it wasn't him there's no way it could have been him if you haven't seen the documentary go and watch it because you will it be able to is tell the trashiest train wreck you could possibly watch and it is nothing like you think it's going to be based off of the preview and i think that we thought originally it was going to be this like big murder investigation just kind of the way it got played out no not at all no not at all and the battle between the big cat lover zoos rescues they're like there's a bunch of them they're all run by slime balls they're all nuts and one is a takeover of another one and then one guy basically only hires hot chicks 
uh, as trainers, the other guy and ends up sleeping his, with them, and him, him and his hit, wife end up uh, sleeping with them. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's, train wreck to watch, but it was mindless entertainment but, that I didn't have to really think about. But it was like that comment around like it's a bad accident; you just can't look away. Right, like, you just yeah. need to see what's yeah. going to happen. Well, you, they, going into the story of Carol Baskin and killing, you know, killing the um, uh, her husband. What happens is, is Joe Exotic blames her for the murder of her husband. The husband body has actually never been found they actually say you know she think he thinks that she fed him to some of the tigers and then another story goes on to buried say that he's buried tank. buried under the septic tank and officials need to go and dig out that septic tank and i believe that there is actually an order for them to go and search under the septic yeah, tank I think it's to being see reinvestigated. it's being reinvestigated since this whole documentary came out to see if yeah. that's actually what had happened because joe exotic is actually sitting in jail for Attempted murder a of her. Attempted murder of her. That's mm -hmm. right. That's correct. Yeah. He would go on. He would have a talk show on his on his YouTube, YouTube channel. Yeah. And he would actually go on and talk about killing her. He, he had would a blow up doll that he dressed up like. And her. he would shoot oh, it. And good. it was just really, really disturbing to see that these kind of people actually exist in this world. And and it was funny, but not funny at the same time i'm still un undecided on if it was about them as people or the mistreatment of the animals like i'm not sure it, it focused more on them as people and then how they mistreated right the animals. yeah it, and it, you know it was it was an interesting point at some point in the documentary when you when you look at carol baskin and what she does and she calls it a rescue and then what you know joe exotic and all these other creepy weirdos that are also in the big cat industry. We were trying to figure out what was the difference between the two of them because they both were There was no difference. Big. I think the only difference was that she didn't breed. And I think yeah. that was the difference. And that's why I think she could deem herself to be a cat rescue versus... And then everything she wore was leopard print yeah. or tiger print. Like, it was just... No, like, the tigers are not meant to be in captivity, no. not meant to be handled by human beings. These are wild animals that deserve to be out in the wild, not on game reserves, not anything like that. And these, these animals are being held in cages, and you wonder why that they're, you know, attacking the workers that are there. One of the uh, females uh, on the show actually had her arm ripped off by one of the lions during uh, one of the episodes there, mm -hmm. or they have it on film and showed it during one of the episodes there. And, and it's like, you know, you're playing a game with a predator and that's not, that's not what you do. You mean like these, these animals are out in the safaris and they're out in, in the wildlife and they just, that's where they belong and that's where they should be. And these people have, I guess, the right to have these animals from being big cat rescues, but they should also be put back out into the wild. I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. I don't think it's right. You know, it's hard. It's it, We're not seeing we don't go to zoos. We've been to zoos. Maybe watching too many of these documentaries has a different viewpoint on, you know, the mistreatment of animals. You look at blackfish or shark water, you know, and it certainly gives you a different point of view on the mistreatment of animals, all for rescues when animals can't be rehabilitated but that was certainly not the message no not at all not at all it really was about the people and they it because it was so popular they actually ended up releasing an extra episode uh due to quarantine and they and we were like oh okay we're gonna learn more and it really wasn't it was really interviewing the people in the aftermath of the popularity of the documentary you know and how some of these people are considered famous or they get recognized on the street and 
it just solidified the stupidity that was this documentary. But but I think couldn't help but watch it. Yeah, it was. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna highly recommend this one either. Again, if you have nothing to watch, go ahead and take a watch at it and see what you think about it. But. What a train wreck of a of a of a show of a of a life. I mean, this is this is the problem with our society today is that these people are famous now. Yeah. And they get so many social media hits and for doing the wrong things. And people will follow them and will talk to them and then try to release them out of jail or try to better their lives or whatever it is. And they're getting the the media attention. And they shouldn't be where we should be recognizing, you know, heroes in, in this life, uh, frontline workers in our time of crisis right now, Black Lives Matters protests, stuff like that. And, and they're not getting the attention mm-hmm. that these people are getting for doing stupid shit. And uh, that just boggles my mind. So, I mean, if you want to take a stab at this one, go ahead. Just warning you, it's a train wreck, but you will get hooked into it. You will. Now, I think I think we're going to add one more to this list today for for this episode. And we're actually going to talk about the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. Mm. And wow. All I have to say is wow, because this this was a very, very sad documentary. Highly recommend it right off the bat just to see what the hell is going on in this world today. This was all about a a boy who was living with his grandparents, I believe. And his uncle. And his uncles. And was given back to his uh, birth mother and her boyfriend. Who, let's be straight here, originally gave him up into the custody of the uncles and the grandparents. Right. She didn't, she didn't want him. Right. And it was given back to the mother and the boyfriend. And within 11 months of having him in custody, he's back in back in their custody. He was dead. And, you know, like CPS had been called multiple times to the house and they never did anything about it. Now, the boyfriend apparently would always call this this little boy gay uh, he would make fun of him they would dress him up in a dress they would do certain things to him the the house it was so deplorable the things that they were doing is they were locking him up at night in their clothes cabinet i guess or their uh, dresser like an armoire or something like an armoire and they would cuff his feet they would lock him in the cabinet overnight Uh, That's where he would sleep. They wouldn't let him go to the washroom. Um, They were just doing certain things. And, you know, he would go to school with a black eye. The teachers would report it. They would say, okay, thank you for your report. And we'll check into it. And they never ended up going back to it again. We're only hearing one side of the story here. We don't know everything that happened. But there were so many reports on what had happened in this case. And it just, they just kind of left it to go. And the result was this kid ends up dying. And this kid was beaten his entire time that he was in this house. And I don't, I don't know if the other kids were actually done no. Like, so there was three three other kids in the house. And I think one of the psychologists commented around how typically, it's not typical, but in some cases, it's one kid that kind of takes the brunt of the punishment and the other kids are fine. And in some cases, really well loved and taken care of. And I think because this particular, he was the youngest, I'm pretty sure, and kind of unwanted right from the get-go that... I think they just, they used him as a 
beating stick. Like it was just. Well, when they go through the autopsy after he he dies, they found that his ribs were broken. I think he had one rib intact. He had ligature marks around his neck. All of his like yeah, body was swollen. Like his entire body was swollen. And they ended up calling nine one one and saying he slipped and hit his head on a on a table. Or hit it on the bathtub or something like that. He had a skull fracture. Pretty sure he was hit with a bat. And and they came to find out that the boyfriend had actually hit him in the head with the bat because there was blood from Gabriel Fernandez on the bat that they found. So this kid was was beaten to a pulp. And this happened over the 11 months he was there. And the, and the grandparents tried to get him out of there. The uncles tried to get him out of there. Uh, nobody could do anything. Child Protective Services didn't do a damn thing about it. Uh, they let this kid suffer. He fell through the cracks in the system and the system screwed him over and he's no longer living. Yeah, he was eight years old when he died. I think the hardest the hardest part was when they were talking to Child Protective Services or whatever it is in L.A. County. You know, I mean, clearly they showed remorse for the fact that this poor kid died and and for whatever reason. But they have this theory on it is better to leave the child with the parent if the circumstances deem it to be okay. So for whatever reason, whatever interview there was with him, the mother or the boyfriend, they never deemed it severe enough to pull him from the house. And that would have saved his life. And I think that part was the hardest part to swallow through the entire documentary because it seems so obvious on how they were portraying it that he should have been pulled. Right. I mean, the teacher was literally calling on a weekly basis to the social worker saying he's come in with a black eye. He's come in with this. He's got behavioral issues. He's reacting. He doesn't want to participate. He even like smiled and put that that Mother's Day card together, which is just the most heart wrenching part of the entire thing. Smiling. And you literally see he's black and blue in the in the photos that were attached to this this gift that he had put together for her for Mother's Day. And, you know, when they do the victim impact statements, the the teacher even uh, came in and read the impact statement during the court proceedings. And she's like, this will never leave me. She almost had guilt on that she didn't do more, even though she did everything that she was supposed to do. And then they, there was a whole thing around trying the social workers around. Well, before we get into that, I'm going to say like, you know, as, as, Someone that works in the education field as well, we're also trained that, you know, if something like this were to happen, you know, you need to call CPS, you need to call report this, even if you report it to your principal, and they end up reporting it. And and it just makes you think that it, not that you're wasting your time, but are people doing the right things in those situations when you are making these reports? Are they being left for dead in, in lack of a better term, because they're not doing their jobs? And how are these kids falling through the cracks now they went on to explain that some of these social workers had 30 cases at a time or 50 cases at a time and they're very overworked and some of the, the some of these cases may have fallen through the cracks just due to the the workload they didn't have enough staff or whatever the excuses were however how many children are dying in the custody of parents where child protective services were called, how many of them are dying, how many of them are being beaten and not being removed from the houses when the opportunity is there for them to be removed. And I, I think the the ending for the documentary, and I won't I won't ruin it, was disturbing. 
well, around. Let's not get into that yet. Okay. So let's go actually go back to what you just had said. And for the first time, I believe Child Protective Services was actually tried yeah. in court for their lack of attention to this case and not allowing it to to go any further. But you know, they they actually end up in a mistrial, I guess, or the judge dismissed the case saying they that never made it you know, trial. it didn't even make it to trial they didn't because have enough evidence to support the charge around because I think inevitably they were able to prove that they did all the things that they were supposed to do in order and followed all the protocols and eventually it just it got to the point where it, it never actually made it to trial. Yeah. I mean, they lost their jobs, I'm pretty sure. And and you, you can see that some of them feel terrible about what happened. But at the end of the day, you, you, you know, you're going to feel terrible after something happens. The job is to prevent it from happening. And that's what they didn't do. And the end of the documentary, you were just about to say something about the end of the documentary. Yeah. So I let you get into that. So not to spoil anything, because really, you could read all of this on the internet without watching the documentary. But, you know, I think it was literally a week after the conviction. I mean, thankfully, both the parents will, well, this boyfriend and the mother will rot in jail for the rest of their lives, thank God. A very similar instance happened to another kid, almost like I think it was like a week or a month after this happened. And so you think about all of the way that the Child Protective Services and the and the sheriff office and the county police and everything went through and literally the almost identical circumstances where the mother and the boyfriend ended up killing another kid that wasn't taken out of custody once again and that is another yeah. kid that fell through the, the, the cracks and and that's exactly what i was talking about is how many of these are happening around the world where child protective services are called and what's the point of having child protective services if they're not going to do their job and we're not here to we know that these social workers are up against a really tough caseload and you know, I get it. There's probably not enough of them for the number of cases or calls that they must get. We're not we're not trying to shit on the profession. There is probably we're shitting on the protocols that were taken. Yes. Basically. Yeah. Because it, And the it rules costs... around when more or less how they were trained on how to handle this stuff, right? Or the pieces and again this these two cases came out of LA County, right? So you know, we're not obviously in LA County. We're not saying that what happens in Canada or Ontario is the same, but it clearly gaps in the way that these cases are handled. There's gaps in the policies that protect these kids. Like this is what they're they're meant to be for, be there for. And it was just such a heart wrenching thing to watch because all you wanted to do was just scream at the TV, just take him with you, just pull him out of the house, put him in foster care, like. The worst foster care environment was probably better than the home life that he was living in. He basically got locked in a box. Basically, yep. And yep. he lived in fear. And if you see the photos and the love that this kid had with his uncles and with his grandparents, you think to yourself, all you had to do was pick that kid up, put him in a car and drive him to grandma's house, and he would have been living right now. Yeah. And that is the part that I think... You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I bawled my eyes out at the end of that one. And it's just the big what if, you know, if he had just done this, if he had just done that, then potentially these kids would still be living. Yeah, definitely. So this, this documentary, I highly recommend yeah, watching. It was, it was actually, again, once again, I'm going to say this a lot, a huge eye opener. Yeah. 
uh, something that we don't see every day, something that we don't know. I mean, I guess we know that this does go on in the world. You just don't see it to this extent. I guess you don't see it on the news covered as much or you don't hear the whole story of it. And if you don't hear the whole story, there's no way that you're going to understand the whole situation. So uh, this is a very good documentary to watch. Unfortunately, the way it ends and the way the boy was treated, my God, I, I, I don't wish that upon yeah. my worst enemy. But uh, it, it's a good it's a good documentary. If you have time, go and check it out. We clearly need to find happier documentaries to watch. I mean, our, our Netflix actually just kind of uh, looks at because you watch this, you may be interested in this. And it's all about serial killers. And we end up doing uh, a lot of uh, documentaries and must think that we're... Uh, if someone were to profile mm-hmm. us based on our Netflix watched list, they might be concerned about us. Yeah. Well, that'll get me into the end of this episode. And I'm going to describe uh, what we're going to do in the next episode because we're going to review a couple more documentaries and we're going to get into actual serial killers yeah. and murderers. We're going to get into uh, Making a Murderer in part two. We're going to get into the Ted Bundy confessions. We're going to get into the uh, Aaron Hernandez story and a couple more, I think, as well. So stay tuned for part two of this two-part episode that we're going to do. We actually might actually put it into a three-part series where we want to talk about a new documentary that we just watched, and it's called 13. And man, what an eye-opener that one was. My God, you need to go and check out this documentary for sure. We're going to put a review on that one, probably a whole episode dedicated to just that documentary. Given the time we're living in and the Black Lives Matter protests and all of the things that are happening in the world right now, it is eye-opening. I'm going to try not to cry because <laughs> it was it was hard to watch. It was very hard to watch. I'm going to say this on a couple more podcasts going forward. I'm not blaming ignorance for anything. We just don't know that it's happening. And I don't know who's to blame for that. Is it our ignorance? Is it the media's ignorance and not showing this kind of stuff that's happening? We just didn't know that it's happening. And my God, this this documentary really, really opens your eyes. I highly recommend going to see it. We're going to do a review on this one, definitely for sure, in part three. So actually, I'm going to change my tone to this was part one of the episode of a three-part episode because we are going to do a three-part episode for this. So that's going to take care of this episode for now. Make sure you tune in to part two and part three of this three-parter for Mrs. Awesome. Now Amy. And Director Awesome. Now Tom. Stay safe, be kind to each other, and we'll see you later. Here we go! Pop Jerky.